please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 89, which is the final psalm in book three of the five books of the Psalms. If you're new to using the Bible or a guest or visitor with us, welcome. Psalm 89 in the Black Pew Bible can be found on page 463. And if this is your first time worshiping with us, this will be our last Sunday for a little while in the book of Psalms as we then next week turn to the letters of John. Psalm 89 is the third longest psalm in the psalm book. Meaning, should I read the whole thing at once? Of course I should. It's God's holy word, and we're a word-centered church where reading the Bible is part of worship. Amen? So we don't want to shortchange you on the reading of God's word. However, I do think, because this is also a sermon that I'd like to teach and preach God's word to you, not just read it. I'd like to give you the outline of the psalm on the front end and the outline of the sermon so that way as we're reading, you'll hopefully be able to track what's going on. It's a long psalm. And I think there's three basic movements after the first four verses, which is the introduction. So if you're following along, verses one through four are going to provide the introduction to the psalm. And then what we're going to notice is that God's person and his plans are going to be majestically revealed, powerfully revealed in section 1, which is verses 5 to 16. And you're going to notice creation and salvation, but we'll highlight creation in the sense that the creative God is going to establish his throne and his power on heaven and earth and on the sea And that will be section one. So, to summarize, we're going to read Psalm 89. And we're going to begin with a brief introduction. And then we're going to look at creation. The power of creation. Verses 5 to 16. And then we're going to transition from verse 17 to verse 37 to look at God's covenant promise to David, King David. So, from creation's power to God's covenant promise. And then finally, you're going to notice an abrupt change of direction in this psalm. From exalted praise in the first section, creation's power, to God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to David, all really lovely things, by the way, super encouraging. Last week's sermon in Psalm 88, it was a lot of death and darkness for those of you that remember. And then immediately we turned to just joy and praise and promises. But then we returned back to the darkness. This is a lament psalm. It's a lament psalm that begins with praise and turns to lament, which is the exact opposite of most lament psalms. Psalm 89 is a little strange, unique, weird in that way. Begins with praise, establishes God's promises, and on the basis of God's revealed character and person and promise, the psalm laments. So that's verses 38 to 51. And the last thing I want to say before I read God's holy word, is that this is the end of book three, and like all the endings of each book of the Psalms, there is a benediction that I believe was added later by whoever arranged and collected the Psalms, and I don't think it's original Psalm 89. I'm going to read it, but I just want you to know that if it seems dark, depressing, and lament, and then all of a sudden, blessed be the Lord, amen and amen, and that seems strange, it's because it is. 
It's the ending of a scroll in the Hebrew scrolls that would have ended book three to say, end of this book, beginning of book four, Psalm number 90. With all that being said, hopefully that helps introduce what I will do now, which is read the entire psalm from beginning to end. And remember, we're going to start with power and creation, promises, God's covenant promises to David. That shift, I think, is 16 and 17. And then 37, 38, this one will be obvious. You're going to see pain. Pain lamented. Let's read the psalm together. A maskil of Ethan, the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Section 1 now. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. Transition, part two. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty, I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted." I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm 
for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. Section 3. But now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered his, him with shame, Selah. How long, O oh Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. With which your enemies mock, O Lord with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And my prayer for us today is that as we see the person and plan of God revealed in Psalm 89, we will worship. We will rightly bow down and worship the God who is in Psalm 89. Amen? That, I think, is the most important takeaway of Psalm 89. We're here, friends, at church not to be entertained. We're here to worship God. And I would love for you all to worship the God who is revealed in Psalm 89 in three basic steps. First, the way that his person and plan is revealed through creation's power. That's our first section. Second, through his covenant promises, that's the second section, verses 17 to 37. And finally, through Christ's pain, through the pain of the anointed one, the one that's referred to in verse 38 and verse 51. See the bookends? The anointed. That's the word Christ. So we will see creation's power, covenant promises, and the Christ's pain being the way that God will reveal his personhood, his character, 
and his plans. And as we unfold and unpack this, what, what greater motivation could I try and encourage you to pay attention, to focus, to listen, to dial it in? It would be to just simply say, there is nothing more significant for you right now today than for you to behold the God in all of his fullness and glory and see his plan for all of creation and see how good that is for us. I don't think that there's anything better I could share with you today. I don't think there's any other applications or tips that I could muster up. No wisdom greater than you seeing God. And so let's dive right in. Psalm 89 verses 1 through 4 gives our introduction and I think helps us see that verses 1 and 2 paralleled with verses 3 and 4 tell us that this psalm is a song that is singing of God's steadfast love forever and ever to all generations, even the generations that experience pain and suffering as our psalm clearly points to. I will sing of steadfast love forever. This is actually a well-known English Christian song. I'll sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. If you've heard that song, it comes from this psalm, Psalm 89. It's very upbeat. Perhaps that songwriter forgot the end of the psalm. We're headed to pain. But it begins establishing that this is a psalm of praise. And it's on the basis of God building up forever, verse 2, in the heavens, establishing his faithfulness. And then notice this grand, infinite power and person, God, is going to channel and funnel that faithfulness through a person, David. Which is what verses 3 and 4 explain. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Establish and build. Establish and build. Did you see that repeated in verses 1 through 4? Highlight it. Underline it. Notice it. Why? Because those are the key words that Brian just read for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I will establish your throne. I will build your house David. And so these key words are highlighting to you that the point of this psalm in verses 1 and 2 is to say the infinite power of the mighty God in heaven is going to, again, channel all of his loving faithfulness and the power of his throne through the man David, through his reign, his rule, his offspring, his kingdom. And that's what sections 1 and 2 are essentially saying. So let's start with section 1. Let me just walk you through and see how this is a declaration of God's faithfulness, how his throne, how the heavenly God who exists above the earth has created everything and he should be praised and worshipped. But then notice that this psalm is going to then channel through David in a very special way. So first, point one, section one. God's person and his plans are being revealed through God's creative power as verses 5 to 16 demonstrate. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones, verse 5 says. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And we'll pause here to notice that this phrase heavenly beings is the same one we saw in Psalm 82, and it's referring to the spiritual beings, the sons of God, 
meaning the angelic creatures, and they are worshiping Yahweh, the one true creator God. A God that is greatly to be feared in the council of these heavenly holy ones. That's what verse 7 is saying. Angels in Isaiah chapter 6, seraphim, read Isaiah 6. The throne room scene shows that all around the throne of God are these beings, angelic, majestic beings, and they've got massive wings, and the voice of these angels shakes the threshold and the temple's foundations because they're mighty. Quick little study of angels in the Bible will show that every human that ever encountered an angel fell down on their faces, was tempted to worship them, saw them as majestic. Do you think that if these holy, heavenly beings are bowing down, covering their faces and covering their feet in honor and worship of the Holy One who created everything, that you, little earthling, might think little of yourself and much of this Creator? This is what verses 5 to 7 is laying out for us. O Lord, God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. What I just read to you is, I believe, a mishmash of creation language from Genesis 1 and Exodus language when God split the sea. Rahab is the ancient goddess of the waters. It's a name for a dragon, a monster in the sea. And if you remember reading Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and then there was his spirit hovering over the deep, the watery wasteland. And God stilled the sea with his word when he said, let there be light, and there was light. And then God said and spoke, and then there was dry land, and then he separated the waters. He rules the waters in Genesis 1 with his word, not with force and with might, just with the simplicity of his mighty word. Sovereign king is what Genesis 1 is telling us. Ten times he spoke, and it was. The same way in the Exodus story, Rahab, the great sea dragon, He was destroyed as the waters were split. The waters are no match for the king who rules and created the waters. This is what he's referring to by mixing the idea of both creation and redemption and salvation all being bundled together in verses 9 and 10. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass, and you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Jot down. Parentheses, side note, Exodus chapter 15. As soon as they cross through the dry ground and then the waters swallow up the enemies of Egypt, the people start shouting, rejoicing, and singing the song of the sea is what it's called. The God who is like none other. Who is like our God? Working wonders. And then what do they say repeatedly? Look at his mighty arm, his hand. And that's the first time in the entire scriptures where God's strength is being described as his strong right arm and hand. That's what I mean. It's a reference to Exodus chapter 15. It's the combination of creation imagery and the power is being put on display. He's the creator God. Can he split the sea? Yeah. Can he destroy the enemies? Yeah. That's who he is. 
Who is like him? Egyptian gods? Can't stand a chance. Babylonian gods? They're nothing. Any spiritual beings in the heavens, all they do is bow down and they worship him. This is what Psalm 89 is establishing as the basis for praise of God's faithfulness. Verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon are mountains. We just sang in our opening song, by faith the mountains shall be moved. He made the mountains. He wants to move a mountain, he'll move a mountain. Tabor and Hermon are these mighty majestic mountains, and what are they doing but praising his name? This is a gloriously exalted psalm of praise. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed then are all of the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face and exalt in your name all day and in your righteousness are exalted. Point one is that God's person who he is, sovereign king over everything that exists. And his plan to create and to save creation is being praised through his mighty power, his faithfulness to his commitment to this world that he made and all that is in it. I think that we've already alluded to some very obvious applications. If God is getting praise from the heavens and the skies, if this God is getting praise from the waters and the seas, and they obey him, if this God is getting praise from the land and the mountains, then are the humans on the earth praising this creator God? Brother or sister, you came to church today to be reminded that everything that you see in front of you is real, but it is not ultimate reality. There is a supreme, transcendent, preeminent one, and he is the God who created all that is. You did not create yourself. You are a dependent creature. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Be freshly reminded of his immense and infinite power. Come to church hungry and eager week after week, not just to receive instructions for the earth but to receive reminders of the God who is in the heavens. And this is why we should come for worship. My conviction is I believe right now we have a transcendence tragedy. Transcendence is the word that means there is an existence beyond just the physical or material world. And there's a tragedy going on, and it's that you and I breathe the air of secularism every moment we walk on this earth. The people around you, your neighbors, the news media, they do not believe that there is something beyond what you can see. And it is fundamentally essential for all of us to reclaim the otherness of worship. To come to church and have our minds and hearts not turning downward or outward, but upward to the God of the heavens. And this psalm does great work on just that point. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I would like you to consider why in the world you exist, how you make sense of it. And I would like you to then ask yourself, once you have an answer, how did you make sense of that answer? What kind of reason or logic did you use? Do you appeal to science? 
Is it at all troubling that if you're not a Christian and you're not submitting to the God who is, that all scientists that started the modern science project were Christians? The fundamental basics for science is for us to believe that there is a God who exists, who's outside of us, and has created the world in the order that we see it, without which there's no basis for doing any scientific experimentation. Do not lose the heavens by just focusing on the order of the earth. Realize that there's a reason for that order. And I would encourage you to consider the claims of the Christian truth, even the Judeo-Christian truth, that there is one supreme God who has created everything, including you, and you should worship him. You should join the chorus. Join the choir of these embassy church members who have come today to worship and give praise to the God who is faithful, to the God who is worthy of worship, and realize for each and every one of us that even though this is what we were made for and created for, we have sinned against this God. We have not given thanks to him. We have not acknowledged him. We go about living our day and pursuing our dreams and our goals without once thinking about why we're here on this earth. And each one of us, as members of this church, we don't just like to hear lofty theological sermons about the greatness of God. We're here because we have realized that we've sinned and offended this holy God. And the reason for lament, the reason for pain and suffering in this world is precisely because we have rejected him. And this is where this sermon is going. So I would encourage each and every one of us to just be freshly reminded of God's majesty and might as king and ruler of all things, and whether we're a Christian doing this for the repetitive hundredth or thousandth time, or this is your first time, humble yourself before God. Submit to him, pray to him, acknowledge him, thank him. That's point one. Point two, God's infinite creative power in the heavens is being channeled through his covenant promises to a particular man, and that man is David. Start in verse 17, and you'll notice the transition here. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. The reason I do the transition at 17 is because of that phrase in verse 18. Our king, in reference to David, is the one that is being referenced, I think, in this little two-verse couplet, verses 17 and 18. So, Unlike your ESV translation, there's a little paragraph break in 18 and 19. It's fine. I think it's actually 16 and 17. All that to say, here we begin a poetic meditation of God's promise to a specific king. His name's David, a real man in human history. Of all of the ancient works that exist for us modern readers today, there is more written on David than any king in human history. This is heavenly, infinite to earthly, finite history. The Bible that we read is not just myths and fairy tales. It's rooted in real life from real people that lived and walked this earth, and David is one of them. And it says in verse 19 of old, the vision was spoken about a godly one, one who would have help and be mighty and be exalted and chosen from the people, and we see in verse 20 that it's none other than David. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. And again, that's the word for Christ. The anointed, chosen servant of God is David, the son of Jesse, 
the king who was, out of all the other kings, a man after God's own heart, as we heard read in Acts chapter 13. And in fact, it's verse 20 here that is briefly referenced in that sermon from Acts chapter 13 that Ben read for us earlier in the service. Notice the relationship then between verse 20 and verse 13. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. Do you see the link between the infinite strength of God's right hand and arm being given to David? David's right arm will be a reflection of God's right arm. When he rules the scepter on the earth, he will be doing none other than ruling with heaven's power. This is fantastic. This is why I'm trying to illustrate and describe that heaven's mighty creation and salvation power is going to be channeled through the right hand of a man, a singular historical man in human history, and it's David. But this continues. It's not just this one reference. The entire section is playing off of each other. Verses 20 and 23, notice it says... So the enemy will not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and I will strike down those who hate him. Not only is that exactly what was promised in 2 Samuel 7, as Ryan read for us just a few minutes ago, but it's exactly what verse 10 says. Look at verse 10. You crushed Rahab like a carcass and scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. David's mighty arm will do the same thing that God's mighty arm did. Crushing enemies ruling over the earth in justice and faithfulness and in hesed love. Verse 24, my faithfulness and my hesed steadfast love will be with him and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Come on, guys. Clearly, that's a callback to what we just saw in section one. The God who rules the rivers and the waters and the seas. I know that this is probably not going to land on most 2023 American modern readers, but the sea is the epitome of chaos and evil in the ancient world. That's why the sea dragons are personifying all that's wrong and evil in the world. So so just import that into that little phrase, Rahab and the sea. God is going to rule over all evil forces. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He rules, he reigns, and then David will be the one that will rule the sea. A human. A human will rule the sea? Don't humans rule the land? A a human. Kind of walking on water almost. Go figure that. Verse 26, all the way to the end of verse 37 is just repeated one after another of him referring to the promises that were made in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and how God will be faithful to those promises. And here's the one I want to highlight. When we read 2 Samuel 7, it's easy to miss over this promise. God promised, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build your name. I'm going to defeat all the enemies through you. And... If you disobey me, I will discipline you. I will strike you down with the rod. You will bear the mark of a true son, a son whom the father loves, and you will be disciplined. Did you see that in our text? 
Verse 29, I will establish my offspring forever and his throne the days of heaven. But if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. That's almost word for word a recall to the promise God made to David. If your children, your dynasty, your descendants don't obey me, well, then they will be disciplined. But notice God's promise in verse 33. Even in spite of sin, iniquity, and rebellion, I still won't remove my steadfast love. I will not be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun is before me like the moon, it shall be established forever, and it will be a faithful witness in the skies. Did you just catch the logic of section two? Not only will God's covenant power and creation power and salvation come and be channeled through a man, King David, but that God's covenant promises will be fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled even in spite of human sin, rebellion, and iniquity. That but, that little transition, if they disobey, I will punish them. But I still won't disobey my promises. I still won't lie. That's verse 33, by the way. Circle that. Meditate on that. Realize how many glorious things happen in the Bible because of a transition of, but I still will save them in spite of their sin. Oh, friends, this is the gospel. This is the essence of the gospel. God makes a promise to humans. Even though those humans reject, stiff arm, rebel, turn away from, think they've, they've got it figured out. God is faithful to his promise and will find a way to make sure that even with human sin and rebellion, his plan will not be thwarted. Not in Genesis 3. Not in Genesis 6 through 9. Not in the covenant that God made with Abraham. Not with the covenant that God made with Moses. Not with the covenant that God made with David. Time and time again, God blesses and promises his people to be the agent for which they will rule over the earth and have dominion. That's the covenant that God made with Adam. And then he reestablishes that covenant with Noah. And then he repasses on that covenant promise to bring salvation and blessing to all the earth through Abraham. And then the people of Israel. And this basic storyline is that God continues to pour out his creation power through his covenant people. And they turn away from him. So what should he do? Well, he should be faithful to his promise, which is to punish them. That's what he should do. If I'm a father and my children were told, today we're having these lovely Moody students over at our house, you should clean up the house before we leave for church today. And I promise you that if you do not help clean up the house, then you will lose all of your screen time for the rest of the week. And then, if my children spend time on their screens, not cleaning up, what, what should a good father do? That's okay. I love you, kids. That's not love. That's not fatherly love. 
A father would say, I said this and promised that this would be the result. No screen time this week, children. You chose screens over service. I asked you to do service. You're going to be disciplined. That's the part of the Bible that sometimes we don't like. That's the part of God's promises that we think, well, what if he just didn't keep those promises? I like it when he just keeps the promises that he'll keep a king on the throne forever and ever. But do you realize that it's the basis of section one and section two, including the promise that God will discipline his son, that we have section three? The lament, the pain, the Christ, and the sense, the idea that maybe God's not actually fulfilling his covenant promise is precisely because of human sin and rebellion. Look at verse 38. Section 3 is about the pain of the Christ. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced your covenant with your servant, meaning your servant David. And you have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes, and you have made all of his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth, and you have covered him with shame. Selah. Why did God do those things? Not because he's cruel. Not because he's vindictive or had his feelings hurt and is insecure. Because he's faithful to his covenant promise. It's exactly what he said to David would happen. If him or any of his sons disobeyed. And so they are reaping exactly what they sowed. I think it's important for us to realize that this section of the psalm even though it is disheartening and discouraging, it is righteous and it is just. It's exactly what God should do as a faithful father. But yet, verse 33 says he still won't remove his steadfast love. He still will keep a king on the throne. Do you see the tension? If you want to make sense of Psalm 89, you have to sense that there's a tension. Okay, which of the promises is he going to keep? Is he just going to punish the Davidic kingdom and destroy the dynasty of David? Because that's clearly what God did. After Solomon, the kingdom was split into two, and then the northern kingdom was destroyed, and then the southern kingdom was wiped out shortly after. David's dynasty was in the dust, the psalm says. Why? Because of their sin and their rebellion against God. And the whole story in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings tells you how they did just the very thing that God told them not to do. And the sons of David were filled with such blatant, high-handed disrespect, worship of other gods, adulterers, spiritually speaking. What should God do? He should keep his promise. So how's he going to keep both? David's dynasties in the dust? Or David's rule is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Notice the lament. Notice the prayer, the cry, the faith, the belief. We still believe, even though we're down into the dumps of the dust of the earth, there will be a day when your steadfast love and your faithfulness to your promise will come about. And that's 
what verses 46 to, I think, 51 are trying to demonstrate for us, that even in spite of what seems to be your present circumstances, whether you're an Israelite in the time and rule of the Babylonian destruction, or you're a 21st century American Christian here at Embassy Church, there will be moments where you will look at your present circumstances and you will think that God is not on his throne, that God is not faithful to his promises, and that he's not coming, and this is just the way things are. And this psalm and so many others like it are to give you faith and believe he's the creator, he's channeling his plans through a human, through a son of David, and this king, this Christ, will bring about both promises. He will lament and cry. He will experience the pain and suffering that he didn't even deserve. His name is Jesus Christ. In fact, when we read Acts chapter 13, when Psalm 89 is quoted, he said, that's Jesus. He just says it right after the quotation. That's fulfilled by Jesus. New Testament authors read Psalm 89 and they say, that's Jesus. So maybe we should too. Maybe we should see that the only way to resolve the tension is to realize that God did punish a son of David with the rod of men. He did stripe his back and whipped him with 39 lashes. He did get mocked and scorned, beaten and bruised. He was crushed by the enemies of God. Jesus Christ is the Christ, the anointed one. David died, and he never rose again. He saw corruption and was buried in the grave, but there was a son of David, Jesus, who was buried in a tomb, and he did not see corruption because his body was raised from the dead. It's the very logic of Acts 13's New Testament sermon of David, the greater son, Jesus Christ, The one who has the full, infinite power of heaven channeled through a singular human. Jesus is the one who walks on water and stills the sea. He's the one that crushes the serpent's head and all of the enemies that would bring chaos on the earth. And Jesus is the only one in the entire New Testament that says, verse 26, my father. No joke. This is profound. The entire New Testament, 27 books worth, various characters and apostles, prominent people that you think, oh, they probably prayed my father in heaven. They never did. There is only one singular person in the entire New Testament that prayed Psalm 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father. There's only one. It's Jesus Christ. That's because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 89 in about a dozen ways, and I think I could preach 10 different sermons on it, but we'll do one for today. Jesus Christ, in verse 27, is the firstborn and the preeminent highest king of creation. Do you see that in verse 27? And I will make him the firstborn. That's Romans 8, 28 to 30. The firstborn over all creation. That's Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of God, the firstborn over all creations. That's Hebrews 1, when it says that I have a son, God, and his throne will reign and rule forever, and he will be the firstborn. And this does not mean that he is a created being. It means he is the exalted, preeminent one, the one who stands above all. 
It's the language of sonship in the ancient world where the firstborn son had a double inheritance of the father's blessing. It's a metaphor. It's an analogy. If you overread it literally and think, well, then Jesus must have been a created one. No! No, we're not Jehovah's Witnesses. No, we don't believe the firstborn language means that he's not the pre-existent deity that reigns and rules in heaven, but then became a man on the earth because all of the fullness of God's power is going to be channeled through a singular human. And our Bible tells us, without a single doubt, repeatedly, it's Jesus. Jesus is this son of David. Read Matthew 1.1. The genealogy of the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. He's the one that traces his lineage all the way back to the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head so that the crown of the serpent would be in the dust. And the crown of the King Jesus, that first was a crown of thorns, he then becomes the preeminent ruler in heaven, King of kings, Lord of lords, the highest of kings on the earth. Do you all understand why five years ago I realized that I was doing you a disservice by not preaching the full gospel and including Jesus' ascension into heaven? Do you realize how significant the reality of Jesus not just rising from the dead and defeating death, but reigning as a human from earth in heaven right now as our representative with all authority in heaven and earth? It makes a big deal. It's a, it's a big difference. It tells all of us that what you see right now on this earth, like point one, there's something more. If a pre-existent spiritual being, the second person of the Trinity, can become a human, then maybe there's something more than just the material world around us. That's called Christmas. And if this perfect servant of God fully obeyed God's law, every single one of them, and did not deserve death, but was beaten and died on a cross for our sake, rose again from the dead, and then an earthling, a human, the dust of the ground, is now sitting on the throne of heaven. Perhaps your understanding of the world and the universe, the fancy word would be cosmology or metaphysics, maybe it needs to be readjusted in reality to the ascension of Jesus Christ. The non-material became material. The infinite God became finite in time and space. And then that finite human forever will exist in heaven and on earth as our King of kings and Lord of lords, the Son of David, the Christ. But he did not get to that status without first suffering, lamenting, weeping, crying to his father? Do you understand that the pain of David's discipline, the pain of the Christ, was taken up by Jesus in his life, in his death, in his burial? And because of that, we then can be adopted into this family and we can pray with hope. We can pray with hope, friends, no matter how bad your Christian life has turned. Maybe it started like this psalm. Praise! God's great. God's good. I worship him. I bow down to him. Things are good. God makes promises. And then it finishes. It, it turns down. Down into the dust. 
You are not promised a lot of specific things in your life. There's a lot of things that are happening to you right now, and it's because those aren't the things that God promised. So that he took them away, or he's not allowed you to have. But if we focus on the promises that God did make, and his plan that he is doing, perhaps that might cause you to pray these prayers of lament with hope and faith and trust. Trusting his character, knowing his plans, and submitting yourself to them even in spite of the moments when sin and rebellion, either sins done to you or sins that you have done to God, cause you to sit bewildered, wandering. Is God still on his throne? Is his promise and his covenant broken? And the answer of this psalm is no. And I think it's fitting that here, as the book three closes, it just ends. It's a cliffhanger. It just leaves you. Doesn't give you all of the answers. You have to read the rest of the story. Book three ends this way because book three is the saddest book. You're supposed to keep reading book four and book five. And by the way, fast forward to two, three years from now, when we get to book five, it's praise God. He reigns. He rules. The king, the son of David, he will rule at the father's right hand. And it'll announce it as if it's already happened. That's where this psalm book is going. But here in the middle of book three, it's pointing to the reality of sin and suffering and pain in this world. And the reason you should have hope and the reason you should trust the character of God is because you can account for sin and suffering in Christ. Aside from Jesus, there is no worldview. There is no philosophy. There is no alternative story or narrative to make sense of the goodness of creation and the great tragedy of sin and suffering in this world. But bottled up in a single person, we have not just a proposition, not just a truth, we have a person. And that's who Jesus is. The person and plan is revealed in Christ, the Son of God, the incarnate one, perfect life, substitutionary death, resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, we can not only worship him rightly, we can get through another day, another week, or the rest of our life, clinging to the hope that he said he would not lie to David. He said that he would keep his promises. We know he did, both to punish and to deliver. Let's turn to Jesus now in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the clarity of your word that you are a God who speaks, reigns, rules, sits on the throne of heaven with steadfast love and faithfulness, and that all of these character truths, all of the ways that you have been revealed in creation and salvation, have come bottled up into a singular person. The fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and it's in him that we pray, and it's in him that we ask for the Holy Spirit to give us another day, another week of faithfulness, another moment to pause and reflect on why you are worthy of worship. And I pray that we would do so now in obedience to your word and trust you for the next hour. We need you every hour. We pray for this hour in the name of Jesus. Amen.